Our scripture reading and preaching text today is 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 18. This is from the NASB 95. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, the hasten, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I ask that you might capture our hearts, capture our affections, capture our imaginations with truth that we encounter here as this letter from Second Peter comes to a close, may it spur us on in our journey. May it change how we practically live day to day. And may it change it so that we might live our lives for you, for your glory, for a king who will return to set all things right. Ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a rumor going around about me that I want to address and correct. I did not pick this year's VBS thing. <laughs> if you know me well, you may think I did, but I didn't. You may think I did because I do love games. I do love board games. I love them so much that I lead our ABC board game life group. It's a group where we intentionally try to build relationships with people outside our church family through the shared experience of playing games around a table together. At our last game night in May, a college student, who shall remain nameless, revealed that she keeps a poker set in a suitcase in her car. Now, believe it or not, as a Baptist pastor, I have never in my life played poker before. Uh, but that night, I came home and I quoted Otis Campbell to Lynn. I would have got here sooner, but I fell in with some evil companions. <laughs> I had never played poker before that night, but because I love board games, 
I have played games that require players to bluff before, and bluff I did. Uh, with something like a two and a six in my hand, I kept asking folks around the table, hey, how good are two aces? There's another ace here. How good are three aces? What would that beat? I kept asking until everyone else folded and all the chips were mine. Uh, I love how games create some unique human interactions. Uh, the best moment of that night by far was seeing everyone else's reactions when I revealed the terrible hand that I had. Uh, games create some unique social situations because outside of playing a game, you won't see your pastor try to intentionally deceive you. Hopefully. God willing. Like By God's grace, you won't. Board games create the space where some unique human interactions happen, as well as offering some uniquely memorable experiences in life. Uh, some games are actually tabletop simulations of life, where you construct a civilization, or build a railroad empire, or fight a historic battle. Because board games often imitate real life, we can learn some lessons from games about real life, and sometimes, sometimes the non-realistic games are even better to illustrate a real-life truth or two. For example, I remember playing an unforgettable game of Forbidden Island uh, while I was staying at a home of some missionaries. Uh, if you're not familiar with Forbidden Island, it's a cooperative game, which means you all win or you all lose together. Each player has their own role and their own character. They move around on this island, but uh, a pl any one player can only do a limited number of things. So you've got to work together. You've got to make a plan. You've got to use teamwork to collect all the island's treasure and escape because the island is sinking. As you turn over cards, different parts of the island become flooded. And if you don't do anything about it, they will sink forever and be permanently removed from the game. And if you ever lose the tile that has your helicopter on it, which is your ride off the island, it is game over. You cannot win. No one can escape. The most memorable game I ever played of Forbidden Island was with this missionary family in France. Together, we had painstakingly collected all the island's treasures and we were all rushing back to that bit of the island where the helicopter was in order to win the game. But as we were trying to get there, the island was sinking right and left all around us. When we finally made it to the helicopter, it was literally the only part of the island that was left. We were all there together. Everything else had been destroyed. The entire game came down to the last card flip. Either the water rose again and we all lost, or we revealed the card that would fly us off the island, and we would all win. We gathered in close. We held our breath. I think someone prayed. <laughs> <laughs> then I flipped the card, and the room explodes. We did it. Spontaneous high fives, spontaneous hugs all around. We survived an island that was sinking and walked away rich with all of its treasures, not the least of which was the treasure of this memorable experience we all shared together, right? That's what you get in board games. 
as I was studying the end of 2 Peter, knowing that I would be preaching with this backdrop behind me, each point Peter makes began to be illustrated in my mind with a different board game. Now, some of you mentally just turned me off, didn't you? I piqued some of your interests, but I also lost some of you. If that's you and you have zero interest in board games, that's okay. Not everyone can appreciate the finer things in life. It's all right. It may not be your cup of tea. I, I don't expect every illustration of the gospel to, to illustrate, to equally impact everyone, every person. But I do hope that everyone here is interested in seeing the gospel illustrated in all of life, every aspect of life. I, I do hope you are eager to see gospel realities at work in all the things around you. In that sense, I do hope to change the way you see games this morning, particularly the way you see a game like Monopoly. Not that you'll walk away this morning thinking Monopoly is a great game, because it's not. Go straight to jail, don't pass go, don't collect $200. Monopoly seems obsessed with not letting people play Monopoly. Bad roll of the dice, straight to prison. Bad card draw, straight to jail. Pick up the thimble by mistake, prison. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm not trying to convince or dissuade any of you to play a board game, but I am trying to persuade you for when you see Monopoly on someone else's shelf, to say to them, you know, my pastor once used that game to illustrate a spiritual truth and then dive right in. It will either give you an open door for a gospel conversation with an unbeliever or the opportunity to remind another believer of some spiritual truth. And both those things are great. This is why pastors put effort into thinking up illustrations. Because good illustrations take a truth you already know and connects it with an image or an object that makes it stick in your mind. It's a bonus if it makes you think of that truth whenever you see that object from now on. So with the backdrop of this VBS theme behind me, I'm going to do my best to illustrate four truths from Second Peter with four games from today. The first of these truths is found in verse 10, and it's this. Know that everything will burn in the end. Everything will burn in the end. That's verse 10. Look with me, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Just like in my memorable game of Forbidden Island, this world is passing away. Everything will sink under the waves of God's just judgment. Everything you see will burn one day. It will be burned away. It will be removed from play. Burned and removed from the game forever. All worldly wealth and attainments and awards, and toys, and planes, trains, and automobiles, they will all burn, along with all human pride, 
and abuse and war and perversion and sickness and cancer and mental decay. All these things will be burned up because they are the old order of things. This old order must come to an end. And let me just point out here that we are not alone as Christians in thinking this. The naturalist who does not believe in God also believes that everything will burn up in the end. One day the sun will expand and swallow up the earth. Our solar system will burn up before it burns out. Every solar system will burn up before it burns out. The atheist and the naturalist agree that everything will burn, but not in a redemptive way. Their burning leads to despair instead of hope. But the fire that Peter talks about here is a refining fire. All the old things, all the things that people strove for and fought over are all burned up. The old things are burned up so that Jesus might make all things new. The perishable elements we see in verse 10, they are reforged in fire, imperishable. This corrupted creation is refined and remade incorruptible. As verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When will this all happen? Peter says in verse 10, it'll happen on the day of the Lord. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You don't know when it will be, you can be but you can be sure that the end is coming. It was the same in playing Forbidden Island. You know the end of the game is there in the cards that you've just shuffled. It's coming. You know the game's end is in that deck somewhere. But you never know precisely when. You'll turn the card that will trigger the end. It's the same with the day of the Lord. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. The king will return at a time when people do not expect But he's warned us in advance that the card is in the deck. The end of the story is certain. And our escape at the end, our salvation on that day, will be a moment like nothing else we've ever experienced. Remember, there were spontaneous hugs and high fives all around as we escaped the destruction of a fictional forbidden island. But at the very best that moment was a small, dull foretaste of the ultimate deliverance that's coming for God's people. It'll be far, far better because this is not a game. This is real salvation. This is a real deliverance from a sinking island that we are all on. I mentioned some of the similarities between verse 10 and the experience I had playing Forbidden Island, but as with any illustration, there are some places where comparisons fall apart. Unlike in the game Forbidden Island, it can be hard to see that the island we are on now is sinking all around us. In the game, it's very obvious. It's a reality you're constantly fighting against. But in our world, it can easily feel like everything's fine. Everything just continues the way it always has. 
this island, it isn't sinking. The world and my heart will go on. This world can feel that way, but the reality is something radically different, Peter says. The world as you see it now is passing away. That's one place where this illustration breaks down, but here's another. In Forbidden Island, you and your friends are saved by your own skills, by your own cleverness, and by just a little bit of luck. Second Peter wants you to know that the opposite reality is at work in the real world. You tried to be clever. You tried to be your own savior and be accepted by your own performance, but no amount of cleverness or skill can save you from what's coming in verse 10. The destruction, the burning, no amount of you being smart can save you from that. You need to realize this morning that you don't need to be clever. You only need to see God's cleverness in sending a Savior to win the game for you. Jesus is the only pilot, the only captain of your soul who can get you off this doomed rock and bring you to a far better country. Trust in Jesus, not in your own cleverness to deliver you to deliver you from a world that will burn to a world that will be without end. That's the first truth. Know that everything will burn in the end. Here's the second. Know how you ought to live now. Know how you ought to live now. That's verses 11 through 15. Look at verse 11. Peter says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace." spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Although it kills me a little to do it, I'm going to illustrate this point with the game of Monopoly. Unlike Forbidden Island, you all know what Monopoly is. Uh, you probably all played some version of Monopoly, maybe Bama Monopoly at some, some point in your life. And Like with the coming of the Lord, you need some patience to play Monopoly. Jesus will return before some games of Monopoly are ever finished. That's just true. But as in life and as in Monopoly, you can do things to hasten the end. In Monopoly, you can hasten the end of the game by how you play it. In this life... Paul says, you can hasten the return of the king by how you fulfill his mission, his great commission. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end of the game will come. In Monopoly, you can hasten the end by spreading your influence and your properties across the whole board. In the real world, 
we can hasten the end by spreading Christ's influence and gospel across the whole world. You can see the similarities there with Monopoly, can't you? But this illustration is also full of dissimilarities. A family game of Monopoly doesn't usually lead to holy conduct and godliness, verse 11. It usually doesn't lead to peace, verse 14, or blameless business deals, does it? Monopoly calls us to act like it's a cutthroat world of wheeling and dealing with others. But Jesus calls us to just the opposite. Peter tells us that since all your investments, all your investment properties will go up in smoke, since Park Place and Boardwalk will burn, what kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You don't put the knife in each other's back now, right? Because everything you're fighting over will burn. If Monopoly If the Monopoly illustration here isn't doing it for you, and it may not be, let me give you an illustration that will perhaps connect better with you. One from the 1500s. There is a story about Martin Luther that sounds to me like an apocryphal story, like a a preacher might make up to make a point, but it very well could be true, so I'll tell it. The story goes that Martin Luther was out hoeing in his garden one day, when an old crotchety lady came up to the fence and said to him, Martin Luther, that's the way the lady speaks, Martin Luther, if you knew Jesus would return today, what would you do? To which Luther is said to have looked up from his gardening and replied, well, first I'd finished hoeing my garden. You get the point? That interaction illustrates something important. Knowing that everything will burn does not mean we get to ignore temporary necessities, like hoeing our garden. It doesn't mean maintaining our homes, planting our gardens don't matter. Those things do matter. Our work does matter, even when that work is done on things that will burn. If we do our work for the glory of God. If we do our temporary work as worship to an eternal king, it matters. It lasts. Jesus said that if our work is as small or as temporary as giving a cup of cold water in his name, we will not lose our reward. That's a massive truth isn't it? Olympic medals and golden globes will burn, but the impact of that cup of cold water will be felt in eternity. It changes your perspective. What Jesus says changes your perspective, doesn't it? I want to serve in the kitchen during VBS now, right? It changes your perspective. Bringing a cup of cold water to a child as they hear about Jesus. That is an eternal act. To paraphrase Jim Elliot, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, some after work leisure, in this case, to gain what he cannot lose, treasure in heaven from serving children in VBS. So, 
I really hope you plan on serving alongside your church family here this week. Not because we need your service, but because you will be eternally glad you did. Martin Luther, that illustration reminds me that any work, no matter how small or temporary, can be done for the glory of God and that we should live at all times like the master is coming back. I think that's what Luther mainly meant in his response. What I'm doing right now, hoeing my garden, I'm doing it with a heart grateful to my Savior, and I would not be ashamed to be found engaged in this work should he return today. It wouldn't put me to shame. I would not be ashamed to be found working in my garden or preparing a meal or repairing a hole in my roof. These are all things that will burn, but I can do them in a way that won't. I can do them in a way that will impact eternity. Therefore, I won't be ashamed. I would be ashamed, on the other hand, when Christ returns to be found conspiring against my neighbors or cheating on my wife or building bigger barns to store all my wealth in. If you wouldn't want the master to find you doing it when he returns, then it's best not to do it at all, right? Here is a third thing Peter wants us to see as he concludes this letter. He wants us to know that these letters are Scripture. Know that these letters are Scripture, verses 15 and 16. Look at halfway through verse 15. He says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Have you ever wondered whether the apostles, like Peter and Paul, knew what they were doing? Knew that they were writing scripture as they wrote the New Testament letters? Well, the answer is right here. And it's yes, they did. Peter knows that Paul's letters are up on the same spiritual plane of authority as the rest of the scriptures. Peter wants us to know that these words are actual words from God. And as with all revelation, there is potential for the untaught and unstable to distort them. It's always been this way. It's always been part of sin's nature to distort and twist what God has said. It started in the beginning with the serpent asking Eve, has God really said? And it continued in the wilderness with Satan twisting the scripture in order to tempt the Savior. To illustrate this point, I'm not going to choose one board game. I'm going to choose a whole genre of games here. Have you ever played an escape room game? Ever played an escape room game? Instead of going to an escape room, paying them money, the escape room comes to you in a little box full of mysteries to solve. 
The most recent one that my family did was with the Roaches and the Myricks. Uh, we were all on a train together trying to solve a robbery, which turned into a murder. If you've ever done an escape room, either one in real life or a board game version, then you know this, that like Paul's letters, in them there are some things hard to understand. And if you're doing it with people who have no experience playing escape room games, then the untaught can easily get confused and distort the significance of the clues that they're trying to put together. When we were trying to solve the robbery on the train, Heather Roach kept reminding me that my solution couldn't be right because of what this clue said. And for my part, I couldn't make that bit of information fit with the rest, so I just dismissed it. But as it turns out, I was wrong. It did all fit together, and every detail was important. People can make the same mistake with the Scripture. I don't see how this fits, so I'm just going to dismiss it. Or, even worse, I don't like this thing God has said, so I'm going to construct a belief system without it. It's the original lie all over again. Has God really said? Now, Peter does acknowledge that Paul has said some things which are hard to understand. God has said some hard things requiring us to really think in order to put all the pieces together. But there's a difference between this and escape room games, where escape room games are intentionally confusing. <laughs> they have to be so, or else we just solve them right away and move on. Where escape room games are intentionally confusing, the scripture is intentionally illuminating. Where escape rooms set out to confuse you, God's word sets out to set you free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God gave us just enough hard things that wherever the scripture has gone in the world, education has flourished. Languages have been written down for the first time. Schools are established. Universities were first come on the scene to aid in the study of the Bible. God gave us just enough hard things for education to thrive wherever the gospel went. But for the most part, the scripture is understandable to anyone who takes the time to read it. But while the Bible's meaning is understandable to anyone, that doesn't mean the Bible's wisdom is obvious to everyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he writes not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, a man who does not have the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul says that one of the core reasons why the word here is wisdom to you, but foolishness to your neighbor, is because of the Spirit and his illuminating work. God illumines. He turns the lights on in our minds, in our hearts, to see the beauty and wisdom of the gospel. 
That's why a crucified Savior is wisdom to you, but foolishness to your friend. The light has come on. The penny has dropped. And when it does, it just might feel like that moment when all the clues in escape room come together. And the truth hits you. Oh, I see it now. I didn't get it for the longest time, but now it all makes sense. I was blind before, but now I see. Peter wants us to see that the New Testament letters come with the same spiritual authority as do the rest of the scriptures. People will misunderstand, people will misuse, people will distort them, but it's like when people have all the same clues as everyone else in an escape room and yet fail to see how they all fit together. You need illumination. You need something to click and for the light to come on. Thus far, we've seen Peter say that we need to know, one, everything will burn in the end, how we ought to live now because of it, and that these letters are scripture. Here's one final thing we need to know. We need to know about the nature of sanctification. The nature of sanctification, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter says here in these two verses that there are two potentials. Two potentials lie before you. There's the potential to stumble and fall, verse 17, and there is the potential to grow. In grace, verse 18. There's the potential to wither and to rise in our faith. There's the potential to advance in your walk with Jesus and to backslide. All we have to do is take a long, honest look at our own experience, and we know this to be true, don't we? There have been periods of great growth in our Christian life, but there have also been seasons of great falls. We have known both. That's why I tell people that sanctification is a process. It's a process that looks a lot like the stock market over time. You can start where the stock market begins and where it ends and draw a straight line of growth, but it didn't get there as a straight line, did it? That's the same for us spiritually. We didn't get there as a straight line. There's a lot of two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, two steps back in our Christian life. That's why my illustration for these two verses is the game of shoots and ladders. Shoots and ladders, or as they call it in England, snakes and ladders. Snakes and ladders. I like that better, actually. Snakes and ladders. You know the game. You roll the dice, and you move the player marker forward. If it lands on a ladder, hooray, you get to climb. If it falls on a chute, boo, or on a snake in England, then you slide back down and you got to recover ground that you've already covered before. In the game, however, the main way of making progress usually isn't by hitting some giant ladder. It's just by moving forward one space at a time, one row at a time. That fits with our experience. 
of the Christian life as well, doesn't it? We may have the occasional youth camp experience where there's a time of focused Christian fellowship and intake of God's word that's just intense. It's immense. And it feels like we've caught hold of an unexpected ladder. We're going up. Our, our, and our experience is one of a burst of growth. That happens sometimes. But most of our growth will come through the normal, steady plodding and forward movement of one foot in front of another. As Peter says, as we walk forward here, there's something we need to be doing. We're, it's, we're not going to be grabbing hold of every ladder that comes by, but we are to be watching out for every snake that we see. The serpent's lies can paralyze our growth and cut us off from the things that would aid our progress. Sometimes it's a traumatic experience that comes like an unexpected shoot that drops us down. Whatever the case, there is one huge difference here that I want you to see. And it's the reason why I dislike shoots and ladders almost as much as I dislike Monopoly. It's this. In shoots and ladders, there is no agency. Players have no choices to make. All you can do is roll the dice and accept the consequences every time. In shoots and ladders, there is no player agency, but in life, we do have agency. That's why Peter tells us, verse 17 and 18, do not... Uh, Be on your guard so you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We have agency. That's why Peter tells us these things. We have agency in this spiritual game of shoots and ladders. We can choose not to listen to the serpent's lies. We can take Christ's hand out of that pit we've fallen into. The tragic event that would be a shoot plummeting someone to the ground floor, we can choose to take it instead as an opportunity to trust God and actually grow in our faith. That shoot becomes a ladder for us, a hard thing, a bad diagnosis, a tragedy in the family. A hard thing becomes something that instead of dropping us, further refines us, further refines our character and to be more like Christ's character. That difficult thing makes us depend upon Jesus more. What would have been a shoot becomes a ladder for us. Christian, I ask you, do you want to be faithful to the end? That's what we've been talking about Second Peter. Do you want to be faithful to the end? Then Don't knock over the board of your life in frustration. Keep playing. Keep playing the long game of faith. See every obstacle as an opportunity to grow in grace. See every fall as an opportunity to humbly depend upon the Savior. And know this first of all. Jesus has already won the game, right? He's won it all for you already. This is the good news. 
Jesus has kept all the rules so that you, a rule breaker, can join him in his victory. Father, I pray that every heart here this morning would know victory in Christ over the game of life. Christ has kept all the rules. We don't even know all the rules. Christ, but Christ has done it. He's kept them. He succeeded in every place that we have failed. May we this morning rejoice in our hearts that we can embrace this winner and win the game of life ourselves. Lord, may we embrace his victory by faith. And because we, we are united to him, may we live like it. May we live in a world that is sinking, that will burn. May we live like the best is yet to come. We await a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May that be the response of every heart this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.